All right, well, today we're going to begin a new series of messages, probably for the next three or four weeks, that we're calling The Worthiness of God. And what we're going to be doing together is we're going to be looking at the vision of the throne room of God and even of God himself, as John gives it to us in the book of Revelation chapters 4 and 5. Okay, there are a number of different visions of the throne room of God and even of God that you find throughout the Bible. This is the final one, and I think it's the most significant. It seems to me, anyway, that it's the most vivid, it's the most colorful, it's the most musical. It's the loudest, it's the brightest, it's the most detailed. It's given in poetry, for it's so wonderful that plain language cannot even begin to express it, and even poetry is strained. It's amazing. And it's written to move you. It is written to inspire your faith. It's written to leave you differently than you were when you first came and you first heard and hopefully you first saw. It's written, bottom line, fundamentally to move every single one of us to worship the Lord our God, to recognize how worthy He is of the devotion, not just of our lips, but of the entirety of our lives. And it is made to do that even when life really stinks. This is a book that is written to a struggling people. This is a book that is written to an oppressed people. This is a book that is written to a persecuted people and persecuted parenthetically because they believed in Jesus. So it's not just general life stinks, it's life stinks and here's why. It's written to a group of people who come to church on Sundays, okay, and they hear that they're the favorite of the God and they have all the blessings of God, you know, through their faith in Christ Jesus, and then they get in their car and they drive back out into their life, and they're not feeling real blessed. They're looking around going, not feeling like a favorite. What do I do with this? It's written to move you. It's written to rush to the aid of your faith in those moments and reorient everything and then inspire you to worship, even in the midst of life's difficulties. In fact, the last part of this vision that we're going to look at today ends with everyone in the vision on their face, okay, casting their golden crowns. You've sung that song, casting their golden crowns down at the feet of God. And listen to what they say, Revelation 4, verse 11. They say, worthy are you. The word worthy is the word from which we get the word worship. It means worship is a contraction of the words worth-ship. They just made it worship. Sounds easier? But it means to ascribe value to, to ascribe worth. The vision today ends with worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things. Now, that doesn't just mean the heavens and the earth, you know, and the sun and the moon and the stars and the trees and the flowers and the plants and the birds and the bees and all that stuff. It means that, but it means all things. It's kind of like when Paul comes to us in Romans eight twenty eight, one of the most popular verses in the Bible. Why? Because God's people struggle. That's why. And he says, for we know that all things, do you hear that? All things work together for the good, uh uh-oh, of those who love God, of those who are called according to his purposes. All things even include the stinky things, the difficult things, the things that make you come to church and then get in your car and go, I don't know, not feeling like a favorite.
Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, even the difficult things, and even for those we praise you. In fact, for those we praise you more so than if you had not created them. How about that? Because you do, in fact, use them for good. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. And this vision is given to help you and I see that. This vision is given to help you and I understand that. This vision is is given to help you and I embrace that. It's given to help us worship, even when life is stinky, even when things don't make sense. Even when things are difficult. The proper response to absolutely everything that happens in the life of a Christian, everything, it's sort of like the words all thing. The proper response to everything that happens in the life of a Christian is worship. Always. But I don't think you really get that until you see the king. So here comes Jesus, right? And he meets with John, and he gives him this entire book of Revelation, including this vision that we're going to begin to look at today. And you know what he says to him at the beginning of the book? He says, I want you to write all this stuff down. It's not just for you, John. It's for all of my people. He wants us to see this vision, and in fact, John begins with a word of sight. Listen to what he says, Revelation 4, verse 1. He says, after these things, I looked. Okay, so he's going to see it. We're clear on that. And then he uses one of my all-time favorite words in the Bible. He says, behold. Okay, do you know what behold means? It just means look. It's like he's saying, I see this, but that's not good enough. And that's not, you know, I mean, I'm going to write this down because I want you to look. He is begging us to look with the inner eye of our faith. He is calling to mind our imagination and saying, use it. Imagine this. After these things, I looked, but that's not good enough because now I want you to look. And what is he then going to show us? He says, a door standing open in heaven. He sees the doorway between heaven and earth and it's open. I mean, that's just kind of encouraging in and of itself. That's so cool. Jesus is like, I want you to write this down. Here's what I want my people to see. It's the doorway between heaven and earth. And oh, by the way, to those with faith in Christ, open. But it gets even better because then he says, in the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet. Do you know why I like that? Because if you go back to chapter 1, he tells you that the voice of Jesus is like the sound of a trumpet. He's saying, look, I saw the heaven's door, and it was open. And the first voice I heard is the voice of the Lord speaking with me. And what are the first three words? He said, come up here. Wow. I mean, just let that kind of filter through your difficulties for a moment. That should speak to us. I was talking with one of our elders this past week whose father died Thursday night. And uh, he's been spending a lot of time with his dad. His dad lives on the west coast of Florida. He's been having a lot of health problems. I think he was 87 years old. He was not a believer until this past July when this elder had the privilege of leading his own dad at the very end of his life 
to faith in Christ and then reaffirmed that a number of times, even as recently as Monday or Tuesday of this week. But anyway, he was over on the West Coast. He's been going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. So anyway, he comes back. Wednesday morning, he gets the call at four o'clock in the morning. Your dad has, you know, slipped into unconsciousness and it's, it's going to happen soon. And so he gets in the car. He's with his wife. They're racing six hours over to the other side of the state. And I was talking to him on the way, and I said, you know, man, I don't think it's a coincidence that I'm in this particular verse right now. Let me just read it for you. I don't know if this is emblematic of how it's going to work exactly for your dad or for me or for you, but I think there might be something here of encouragement in the midst of this difficulty because John writes this down, and he doesn't just write it down so he can remember it, so he can re-envision it. He writes it down at the command of Christ that we might envision it. And by the way, the door between heaven and earth, not open to everyone, but open to those with faith in Jesus. And so I said, you know, I don't know, man. Maybe the first thing that happens is your dad sees the door and it's open. And the first voice he hears is the voice of the Lord. And what does he say? Come up here. I really like that. After these things, John says, I looked, but that's not good enough. So behold, now I want you to look. He's saying a door standing open in heaven. That's what you're to see. And the first voice, which I, but I hope also you hear, is the voice of Christ like the sound of a trumpet. It is clear. It is loud. It is unmistakable. It is unlike any other voice that we hear in life. And we hear all kinds of voices, don't we? We hear tempting voices. We hear lying voices. We hear accusing voices. And we need to begin to learn to identify those voices as being voices that are not the voice of the Lord. We need to come to know the voice of the Lord. John says it's loud. It's clear. It's like unto a trumpet. And a trumpet is beautiful. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet, speaking with me, said, come up here, and I will show you, John, what must take place after these things, so that you, John, can then write them down for my struggling people, because struggle is what lies ahead for them, and I want you to give them this vision to sustain them through it. And he says, and immediately I was in the Spirit... And behold, like if you missed it the first time, okay, look, because it's getting better. A throne, he says, was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne, who in this context is God the Father Almighty himself, and he who was sitting, he says, was like its poetic language. He's saying, I'm, ha- I'm going to have to employ images because plain language is just, I, it's deficient. It, it won't work. Poetry is thick, it's dense, There's, it says so much in so little, and you have to tease it out. What does this mean? He was like a jasper stone, like a diamond really is probably what the jasper stone is, and a sardius, a ruby in appearance. You know, I think it's interesting. I mean, this calls to mind for me Isaiah's vision where he sees in Isaiah 6, you know, the picture of the Lord Jesus, and he's on the throne, and what does he walk away talking about? 
It's not his face, it's not his eyes, not his ears, not his hands, not his hair, not his feet, not his body at all. He just, he mentions nothing about his physical appearance, which strikes me as being odd. All he talks about is his robe. Why? Because his robe is indicative of his majesty. He's saying, I think, in some sense to us that when you come into the presence of Jesus and you see him on his throne, what you walk away talking about and seemingly are incapable of mentioning anything else is his great majesty. John has a similar experience. He sees the Lord God, the Father Almighty, he sees him on his throne, and he's not talking teeth, not talking ears. He says he was like a diamond. He was was like a ruby. He mentions these two stones that are significant, and you have to say, well, now why are they significant? Well, race around the Scripture and ask that question. You go back into the Old Testament, for example, as you're trying to unpack these images, they're biblical images. You go back into the Old Testament and you look at the garments that were developed, that were created according to the meticulous instructions of the Lord, of Moses, for the high priest. And he wears a breastplate, does he not? Do you remember that? Do you know these images? you know his garments? The breastplate has 12 stones on them, one for each of the tribes of the, the nation of Israel. They represent emblematically the people of God, which he wears upon his heart. The first stone is the ruby, and the last is the diamond. John sees the Lord God on the throne, and he's thinking diamonds and rubies. It's like he's, he's calling these stones to mind, perhaps. And maybe, just maybe, what he's saying is that part of what you see is you see the blazing glory of God is the emblematic signs of his identification with his people. He wears us, perhaps, in some sense on his heart. But in either case, the diamond clearly speaks of his clarity. It clearly speaks of his purity. It speaks of a God who cannot come to you and say, you know, I'm going to take this stuff and I'm going to ordain it for good. I'm going to use it for glory and for good. You might not understand it. You might not see it. You might not get it now, but it's going to happen. He can't lie. The ruby, I think, is the bloodstone. It's red. So it speaks of his wrath. It speaks of his judgment. And it speaks, I think, also of his mercy. And let's not lose sight of that because that's significant too. And it's mercy that is given how? By that which is red, by the blood of the Lord Jesus. That's the idea. And that idea of both judgment and mercy wrapped up in this image of God on the throne fits real well with the next image that he gives us, which is that of a rainbow. And it's a rainbow that is the color of the emerald. It is the color of green. It is the color of life. We don't really appreciate this being Floridians because, you know, I mean, everything's green pretty much all year around here. But go live up north for a while, you know? And you understand that with winter, in some sense, comes death. The days shorten. Everything is darker. I used to go to work at like 7.30 in the morning or something when I worked in Chicago. It was dark. I'd come home. It would get dark at 4.30 in the afternoon. It was unbelievable. My wife was so depressed. Incredible. All the leaves die and you burn them up. All the grass dies. It goes brown and the earth is covered with that which is cold and frozen. That too is a picture of death. When you die, you get cold. You know, the coroner shows up in NCIS and what do they do? They measure the temperature and then he goes, well, I think he's been dead for six hours. His body temperature is going down. 
But what happens when the sun starts to show in the spring and everything begins to get warm and the snow melts and the trees bud and the grass begins to finger up through the ground? Everything goes green. It's the color of life. That is, God has a rainbow, the color of life. He's the source of life. And what is the rainbow? For John says, and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. What is the rainbow? It's the sign of the covenant that God makes with Noah. This can make you a little uncomfortable. This is the part of the children's story we leave out. God comes and judges all of the ungodliness and unrighteousness of mankind, and He wipes out everyone but Noah and his family who find safety in the ark. Everybody. We don't tell that to our kids, do we? I mean, maybe we do. I don't know why they're not traumatized by that. It's traumatic to me. I find that quite a bit unsettling. And yet He is a God who comes as a warrior, and He judges sin. And then having slain the wicked, let's just call it what it is, he takes his great bow, the instrument, you see, of warfare, and he arcs it, and then he points it away from the earth. And he sets it in the sky as a reminder that he will never again wipe out the world, but here's the qualifying phrase, with water. And as a reminder also, I think that the final work of God is not one of judgment. It's not one of wrath. It's one of mercy. So right about here, you know, you got to stop with all the poetry because your mind's already smoking and it's coming out of your ears, trying to keep up. It's like, wow, this is a lot. And you have to stop and go, okay, um, sort of interesting so far, but what does this have to do with me? And, you know, the fact that I come to church sometimes and I hear that I'm the favorite of the Lord and then I get in my car and I drive away and I'm going, oh, maybe not. Well, what do you see when Jesus opens the heavens to you? What do you hear? And then what are the implications of that? You see God on His throne with the emblem of His people near unto His heart, blazing with the colors of His purity and of His clarity and of His judgment, and of His wrath, and, significantly, of His mercy, surrounded by a rainbow that speaks of Him as the source of all life and brings to mind the fact that He judges sin, but that His final act is that of mercy. You come to realize that all of these things that are done to you in this life the things that you suffer, the injustices that are foisted upon you that just fret you and mess you up, Every single one of them will be dealt with by the Lord our God, who, and here is another rather striking phrase in the Bible you don't hear much, the Scriptures teach, will by no means clear the guilty. Think about that. God punishes sin, every single sin. So if, if there's a cry of injustice in your heart, have no fear, it will be dealt with. But fear for your sin and run to Jesus that He might bear the dealing of that sin on your behalf on the cross. That's the gospel, man. Like I can face God and deal with my sins on my own, He and I, or I can run to Christ, the provision of grace, the final act of mercy, and find mercy and find forgiveness. See, God will again judge the world 
And then having judged the world and made all things new, the great warrior God will again set his bow down, and we will then enter into an eternal day, an eternal day of mercy. It reminds me of the psalmist, Psalm 30, verse 5. He says this, he says, weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. That is to say, I think that when we see this God, we're reminded that our struggles in this life, A, will be dealt with justly in the end, but they really don't last all that long. Not in light of the eternity that we are made for, and they will be forever replaced with a morning of joy. And I think also that when we see this God on His throne, this God whom we already saw at the very beginning of this message is worthy, right? He is worthy of all honor and of all glory and of all power. He is worthy of all praise for He created all things, uh uh-oh, all things. That includes even the stinky things in life. Yeah, that's right. And He's all the more worthy because He's ordained them, because He brings good out of them. But the problem is we hear that, then we get in the car, we face our life, and we're like, man, I'm not seeing the good. And sometimes we do see the good if we're honest, and we can look back on it. A lot of times we see a lot of good. Sometimes we don't see any good at all, and we begin to doubt, and we're tempted. You see, the voices come to us that are not the trumpet voice of Christ and begin making accusations against God. And they tempt us to despair. And Jesus says, look, I know those days are coming, John, so here's the deal. I'm going to give you this vision and you're going to write it down, not only that you might behold it, but that it might rush to the aid of the faith of my people right when they need it the most. See, when you see this God, it's like, well, He's not going to tell me He's working it for good and not do it. You can't sustain that and look at Him. And looking at him is exactly what you're called to do. John says, after these things, I looked, and behold, he's saying, you need to see this. A door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard is the voice of Christ like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, and it said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things, meaning in these last days in which my people will struggle. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, there it is again, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne, God the Father himself, and he who was sitting was like a jasper stone, a diamond, and a sardius, a ruby in appearance. And there was the rainbow of life. There was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance, green in color. And around the throne, he says, there were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns upon their head. And that too, I think, should be an encouragement to us because this here is a representation of the people of God. Jacob had 12 sons. Jesus had 12 apostles. It's from these that the people of God descend, and not physically, but spiritually. The Bible is so clear on that. The true Israel is the people of God. The true Israel are those who have the faith of Abraham, not the blood. But the 24 represent the church. They represent the true Israel, and they serve, I think, as an ever-present reminder to us that this world is not our home. And sometimes that's a helpful thing to remember. 
John says, around the throne, there were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments. Isn't that cool? I, I mean, I just, I think that's really awesome because the garment, this white, white is one of the colors that you see all the way through this book. It speaks of righteousness. It speaks of purity. It's the righteousness of Christ given to us by faith. Without it, we're in trouble. But by faith, we're clothed unmistakably in it. It's white, it's bright, and that too, I think, is encouraging to us as we struggle because so many of us, what we struggle with is not just sin in general, it's a sin in particular. And that's our struggle. And most of our issues come from this. There is a God who is not afraid of that struggle. There is a Christ who can clothe you in white garments notwithstanding that struggle. And there's a day coming when that sin will have no power over you. The struggle will end. I saw the 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. And out from the throne, he says, come flashing uh, flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. He wants you to feel the thunder just like pound even in your chest. And he says, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Don't picture some puny little lamp or some puny little, you know, even flare. You know, I mean, just picture like a giant blowtorch roaring, seven of them around the throne in a circle. The story begins to come together. The picture comes together in concentric circles. There were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. It speaks of His holiness. And then it says this, and before the throne, there was something like, it's poetry, a sea of glass, like crystal, which if you think about it, would serve as a reflecting pool, wouldn't it? It would be like a mirror, really. You know, you go to Washington, D.C., you see the reflecting pools. There's a sea of glass which serves like a reflecting pool, reflecting what? Well, the blazing brilliance of the glory of God who shines forth like diamonds and rubies. The lightning that is coming out from His throne, which is the energy source of all things. The torches which are like burning and roaring, seven of them that encircle His throne. And even the glory of the 24 elders also in an outer circle around His throne. Of their golden crowns, of their white garments, of their worship. When the image starts coming together, you see the throne of God in the center, and then you see circle after circle after circle emanating out from the throne of God, which is an image that doesn't really make any sense to us today, but to the Near East, Middle Eastern mind, ancient Near Eastern mind, it made a lot of sense. It was a pretty familiar image. It was the image of the cosmic throne of the universe. They would have understood that. It's the throne that sits in the center of everything and from which everything proceeds. It's the throne of the King of Kings, of the Lord of Lords, and it's surrounded by a sea of glass which reflects all of this beauty as if that isn't already enough. It's stunning. It's overwhelming. What I find interesting, you know, when you jump ahead in the book to chapter 15, what, what you see is that the sea is itself mixed with fire, so it's luminescent of its own accord as well. But what's really kind of cool is that we're pictured standing on it. Like you've always wanted to walk on water, haven't you? But think about that for a minute. 
The people of God, the image is that of us standing on the crystal sea. And that's cool when you begin to rewind the tape and think about what the sea represents. We've done this in the past, but you go all the way back to the beginning of creation and God creates the heavens and the earth and then the the curtains open and you see the world and it's dead and it's dark and it's covered with the sea. It's covered with water. It's the picture of utter chaos. It's that which is completely out of control and God tames it and controls it and orders it and fashions it. He makes it His servant, but it represents chaos again. Go forward a little bit to the flood of Noah. Talked about that. Pretty memorable moment in the message, wasn't it? What do the waters represent there? The judgment of God, the wrath of God. It represents death. Go forward a little bit in the story of the people of God. Sure, yeah, they're on the Mediterranean, but they're not a seafaring people, and their enemies are oftentimes, and they get attacked from the sea. So it represents that which is uncertain, that which is threatening. Storms in Israel often form over the Mediterranean, then come up off of the sea. It represents that which is turbulent, stormy. The seas divide people from people, and nation from nation, and landmass from landmass. And so it represents that which separates and divides us. John says, look, hey, we're all going to stand on it, which means that God has not only tamed the sea at that point and conquered it and placed His feet upon it, but He's taken all of that stuff, chaos, judgment, death, wrath, turbulence, uncertainty, you know, attack, storms, divisions, all of it, and He's placed it under our feet as well. And I I find that kind of encouraging. It's good to know that's sort of the trajectory of things. That's the way the story ends. John says, and before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal, and in the center, meaning in the midst of it all, closest to the throne, the inner circle, and around the throne, see, there's the circle, four living creatures oriented, no doubt, to the four points of the compass. It's the cosmic throne. And the word living creatures is the same word that Ezekiel uses of the cherubim, And the cherubim's job is to guard the holiness of God. You see them pictured, you know, at the gates of Eden. Sinful man has been escorted out. The cherubim guard the gate. You can't come back. The way to the tree of life is barred. You find them embroidered on the veil of the temple. Same deal. It's to keep out from the presence of the Lord. Well, the living creatures might be cherubim or maybe they're seraphim, you know. I mean, I don't want to overanalyze this, but when you go back to the the vision of Isaiah in Isaiah 6... Those guys have six wings, and they sing, holy, holy, holy. Well, that's where we're about to go. John now begins to describe these creatures in great detail. He says the first creature was like a lion, which is the king of the wild animals, the wild beasts. The second creature like a calf or an ox. Think of a bull, if you will, the king of the domesticated animals. The third creature had a face like that of a man who, by his rationality and intelligence, really is the king of all of these creatures, right? The fourth creature was like that of a flying eagle, the king of the air, and the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, don't miss this, are full of eyes around and within. Kind of odd. Very different. But designed to help you. To make you to understand that nothing goes unnoticed. Nothing. 
Reminds me of that verse in 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9, where it says, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth. To what end? For what purpose? That he might hammer you when you screw... He's made provision for that in Jesus, hasn't he? Thankfully. His purposes to his people are good. They're benevolent. That he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. That's the kind of support I'm looking for. I'd sign up for that. John says, the first creature was like a lion, the king of beasts. The second, like a calf or an ox, the king of domesticated animals. The third creature had a face like a man whose strength is his intelligence and rationality. And the fourth creature was like that of a flying eagle, the king of the air. The idea is that he's collecting up all of these different spheres, and these four creatures represent the created order. And what does the created order in heaven do? The four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, which means that they see everything that I see, everything that you see, and they see a whole lot more, by the way. Even the struggles we have, they see. Even the reasons for the struggles that we have, they see. And yet they see it from a different vantage point. They see it from a different perspective. They see it from the presence of the very throne room of God that Jesus, through John, is trying, if you will, to take us to, to give us a picture of, that we might begin to see it the way they do, because what happens is the created order, all of which is what? It's given to the worship of God, created to worship Him. In the image of these four living beasts, worship Him. He says, in day and night, they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. He transcends all space. He sits upon the cosmic throne. He transcends all time. He was, He is, and is to come. And then what happens? Well, when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sit on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before Him who sits on the throne and will worship Him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, what? Worthy are You, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things even the difficult things, and for those we worship you even more because out of them you bring good. You created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created for your glory, for our good, and yet at times we struggle a lot of time. Which is why Jesus in grace, through stories like this, visions like this, opens the door between heaven and earth. And it's sort of like He's breaking into our disarray. And He's saying, look. Just look. That you might not only endure and persevere, but that you might also worship even through tears. The proper response to everything in the Christian life no matter what it is, is worship. But sometimes you have to see the king to do it, don't you? So he gives it to you. Behold, he's saying, your king. Let's pray. Lord, we do praise you. 
for glimpses of heaven that we can enjoy in the midst of this earth. We thank you for a voice that is like a trumpet, that is clear, that is beautiful, that is unlike any other voice. And there are a lot of voices. I pray, God, that you would give us wisdom as to what voice to listen to, that you would make clear your voice to we, your people. And Father, that you would encourage us by your Spirit and through visions like this that you give us in your Word. They're so wonderful that only poetry can even begin to explain them. And Father, capture us by that. Encourage us by that. And in the difficult times of life, come rushing to the aid of our faith with images and visions like this. God, that we might not just endure, but that we might give you the worship that you deserve from all creatures. God, we thank you for Jesus from whom there is shelter from your wrath, from whom or in whom there is mercy. And I pray, Lord that you would bring every one of us to him, that you might through him open the door of heaven, and to each one of us say, come on up. And pray these things for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.